0: What
1: about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the re-establishment of the DC multiverse. <laughs> Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real books. This worked my out. Excellent! Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week is the week of my birthday. So we are resuming our discussion of my favorite comic. We are picking back up with Banana Fish Volume 2. This is, of course, by Akimi Yoshida we are reading from the second English version, the one that's still easily available in print via Viz Media. Besides Yoshida, we have English adaptation credits to Rachel Forn and Carl Gustav Horn, with Rachel Forn also credited on translation and lettering and touch-up art credits to Avril DeStrada. As we were saying before, beginning the episode, a shitload happens in this volume. I'm going to try and just do as brief of possible of a sort of plot summary up front, and then we can just sort of dive in wherever we want and let the discussion take it where it goes. But essentially... Volume 2 picks up right where Volume 1 left off. We have Shorter and his allies showing up at the warehouse where Marvin and his men had kidnapped Ash and Skipper, but before Ash and Co. are able to get away, the police show up and in the ensuing chaos and everyone trying to escape from the police. Skip gets shot and killed, while Ash, in his rage, follows up behind Marvin and follows him back to his apartment, where Ash finds that Marvin has already been killed. The cops then immediately spring right up on Ash. It's a fix. It's a trap. Ash is now being framed for Marvin's murder. We get a lot of corruption between the syndicate and the police in this volume and that corruption includes ash being sent not to a juvenile holding facility as one would expect since he is still legally a minor but instead is sent to be detained in an adult prison where his life is under threat because many of dino's men are also incarcerated there. The cop characters who are sympathetic to Ash in the story, Charlie and Jenkins, get wind of this and contact their friend who is in the same prison, Max Lobo, the character from the Vietnam-era flashback at the beginning of Volume 1 and request that he do what he can to keep an eye on Ash, try and do what he can to keep him safe. And that gets complicated when Ash finds out who Max is, and vice versa, because Ash is in fact the little brother of Griffin, Max's former military buddy in Vietnam, and the victim of the banana fish drug who just lost his mind and was shooting at the rest of the squad before Max had to take him down. So they don't get along. Max tries to do what he can, but Ash hates him, thinks that he betrayed his older brother. And it is proven that the cops were right to be worried about Ash's safety in the prison. He ends up getting gang raped by a group of other prisoners led by a prisoner named Garvey. After this, he at one point is sent to the hospital wing of the prison in which he manages to sneak out a pill capsule later in the volume. The police, as well as eBay and A.G. all come to visit Max Lobo and Ash in prison. And after talking for a bit, Ash surprises everyone, including A.G., by pulling A.G. in to a deep kiss by which he transfers the aforementioned stolen pill capsule into A.G.'s mouth inside of which he has hidden a rolled-up piece of paper, which he uses to get a message to AG requesting that he seek out help from Shorter Wong, telling him to move what he had at Dr. Meredith's office, referring to both the mystery drug and to... Ash's older brother, Griff, who he had left in Dr. Meredith's care. But unfortunately, when AG goes to try and find Shorter in Chinatown, he also gets trailed by Arthur's men, Arthur working for Dino. And so, though AG does find Dr. Meredith's office and Shorter also arrives, they are ultimately unable to stop the syndicate men there from stealing back the banana fish drug sample and Griff gets shot in the course of the conflict and the volume then ends back at the prison where Ash has been moved or rather it might have been Max that got moved point being Ash now has a new cellmate And it turns out to be Garvey, the previously mentioned leader of the gang of rapists. And the very end of the volume is Garvey taunting Ash, sexually threatening him, and Ash making it clear that he is about to put up a fight. And that is the note that the volume ends on. I tried making notes in my phone of just the most bare bones summary I could. And I think that was still literally me talking for five minutes straight because there's just a lot. It's a busy, busy volume. Now that I've tried to give an overview of the plots, which didn't end up being all that brief, where would you like to start? Was there Anything that especially grabbed you or any aspect that you most especially want to get into? Um, I think to start with just like the pace of the story,
0: like I know that volume one obviously has to introduce all the characters, but the way that the pace has really taken off, I mean, you know, you just tried to briefly summarize the events of this volume and that was, I think, the longest brief summary we've ever attempted on this podcast and we can both be pretty verbose when we uh, when we're trying to summarize something
1: yeah and the thing is like i don't think any of what i just said really could have been cut because it's just all plot critical
0: yeah it it the series was like it's not that there wasn't a lot of incident in the first volume but now it's become much more densely plotted in a way i really appreciate like you know but there's a lot that you could to dig into in terms of what happens i mean obviously there's the corruption of the law enforcement um and the sexual violence i think are the two sort of main themes of this volume um in terms of like what's going on but just like the way that it takes off is really arresting like i i read this in in one hit and i just Lit straight through it which wasn't the case with volume one you know volume one started to grab my attention more towards the end it, it did help but this time i knew who everybody was as in like i could tell them apart on the page i couldn't remember half of their names when i started but like when i was looking at them i was like oh well yeah i i know who that is they look different now i think the art's starting to settle a bit um yeah i mean this is just really good <laughs> I don't have a lot of thoughts. I just have a lot of like, yeah, this is very good.
1: I'm glad to hear that. Like, I know you didn't dislike volume one, but I'm glad it seems like you're definitely getting more into it.
0: It's it's a really gritty, nasty crime story. And it looks.
1: Yeah. It yeah. And I think the the pacing here really reflects that, like, just the thriller aspect and the constant feeling of the stakes and so much being on the line and like the literal sort of car chases, you know, the quick hurried running away from the police, the sense that just like nothing can wait, you know, just the cops being like, we have to get to Max Lobo. Now we have to ask for his help now. Just the constant danger around the corner ever piling up between Dino and the most corrupt cop that we meet here, and then the fret of the prison warden and various other inmates and Ash's new cellmates. It's like none of the characters and most especially Ash ever get sort of a moment where they can just relax and breathe. And that sort of is translated into the way that the story is conveyed for the reader. There's really no clear cut divisions. Like we said last time, these volumes don't clearly differentiate where the, different chapters start and stop and if i was to try and make guesses at where i think it would be very difficult because the forward momentum is just so constant uh yeah it's like um i mean looking online
0: there's 19 volumes and at this pace i'm like wow there's a lot more story to come because like it it is Admittedly, though, almost every chapter of this introduces, like, a new threat between the warden and the prisoners and um, sort of elevating Arthur to a a more threatening character than he was in the previous volume. Like, he was kind of a, well, he's still kind of an idiot, but, like, he's much, he's he's a much more of a dangerous idiot in this volume, I think, than he was in the previous one. Um, down to like the contentious relationship between Max
1: Lobo and uh, uh Max Lobo and Ash. Yeah, this series definitely. There is still just so much that's going to happen, and so much for you to still see. It wouldn't surprise me if this ends up being, on reflection, still like especially fast-paced even by the series standards as I just sort of try and think about what all there is to come you know like this feels very much like rising action just rising and rising and rising so much but I think there's a strength to how well the plot and the character drama are in a lot of ways like just inseparable you know like the forward momentum of the say like plot events is so intricately tied to what is most of note with regards to character development and reveals and etc etc in this volume yeah like what you said of arfur we get sort of the ascension of arfur a little bit as ash has sort of been taken off of the board he is trying to ingratiate himself to dino and trying to take over ash's old turf and then we also get i think more page time for max than we did last time and we also just get a hell of a lot about ash but I guess before diving further into that to address probably the first major plot point. Do you have any thoughts on Skip or on Skip's death now that he is out of the picture after being such a relatively important figure in volume one? Not
0: especially. Skip was the hardest thing, I think, for both of us in the first volume to sort of work with, because the way he's drawn is not great as a Black character. Um, so it works for me in terms of the way it affects Ash, but I didn't care about Skip. I was just like, oh, wow, he's died a lot sooner than I would have expected. But, as I said, I I, I didn't mind because it, it meant that, in a way, it was easier to enjoy other chunks of this volume because I wasn't having to look at that character design.
1: I feel pretty much the same, yeah. It is very fast and very sudden in a way that, you know, feels like it's reflecting just the actual speed of the action because of it being such a quick and instant death, which then, you know, propels Ash's rage all the more. And I think Skip largely serves as sort of a bridge character or a setting up character of having been Ash's close friend in volume one who's sort of there to just like be his ally through which he sort of gets to meet and talk a bit more with AG before AG's presence is just going to continue to be on the up and up in terms of importance. And I suppose in a way it feels like he sort of already served his purpose in the story. Um, that being skip because although it's sort of limited by how much Ash is in prison here, I think we already are getting just some nice development to Ash and A.G.'s dynamic here, which they really only get like two or three scenes together here between A.G. first visiting him in the hospital and then the exchange... When visiting at the prison, what are your thoughts on whether, just like AG himself, and or the sort of rising tension between the two?
0: Well, this is sort of this volume is where it becomes very clear that the story is about the two of them. Um, I really like, especially in the latter half of the volume, when AG goes on that mission to Chinatown by himself. I really like that he's clearly... It feels like a real growth moment where he's he's going into this, but he's also completely unprepared for it. Like, he doesn't clock um, shorter in the disguise. And, you know, obviously everything winds up going to shit. Uh, and Griff winds up getting shot. But I, I like the contrast between the two characters because, like, Ash is so hyper-competent that even when he is... You know, assaulted and gang raped, It's partially part of a plan to get into the um infirmary in order to get the drugs so he can hide a message that he can pass on. You know, Ash is an incredibly competent character at this sort of thing. And the contrast with e g that's that's a really cool. it's an it's an interesting dynamic. For the, like, already pretty close bond that the two of them have. That, like, you know, the cops are even, like, picking up on it. They're just like, oh, yeah, the one person Ash is going to trust and listen to is EG.
1: Yeah. I continue to love the dynamic between the two. And I think the hyper-competence of Ash, yeah, is, like, a major part of the contrast in the like Chinatown information gathering scene as A.G., you know, is trying to do his best to fulfill Ash's wish and find shorter. It is the sort of like stepping up moment for A.G. who, despite being the older one, you know, has the whole thing of everyone thinking he's younger And sort of acts like he's younger and seems naive, which part of that, you know, he's in an entirely different country, so there is that to consider. But because he does not come from anything remotely like Ash's situation, it is all very foreign to him, and he lacks that sort of, like, specialized competence in dealing with the situation because... There's simply no way he could have it. But he's still, like, going out on his own without eBay for really the first time that we get to see, you know, specifically lies to eBay to go out on his own to try and help out Ash. And I think a real strength of the A.G. stuff here is just that, like, we get to see A.G. sort of taking agency and you know doing what he wants to do and and there's just like a determination within him that i think is part of what ash sees in him even though he does lack the sort of street smarts
0: yeah i i also this is entirely trivial i really love that when he goes out to do um Not spy stuff, but like goes out to go and talk to criminals and is trying to be undercover. He puts on dark sunglasses.
1: (laughs) That's extremely funny to me. Once again, ahead of our yearly award show, I am looking at a panel as a nominee for panel of the year. And it is just like no dialogue, just the silent shot of A.G. towards the... Beginning of that scene in those sunglasses, just more or less waist up shots, just showing the outfit that he's in. And yeah, it's his like meant to be inconspicuous look, but he is going out in this tank top with dark sunglasses and a flamboyant overshirt that's like not fully buttoned up it's like tied in a bow at his waist has what looks like palm trees on it yeah it's a Hawaiian shirt (laughs) and it's just it's so flamboyant and attention catching (laughs) that the idea of trying to be inconspicuous in it is already funny plus the sunglasses plus specifically the detail that like it's sort of hanging off of one shoulder On one side, the way that, like, I would try and, like, half-wear hoodies in 8th grade, just, he looks very conspicuous and faggy in a way that I find very funny and endearing. It was literally
0: that panel I was talking about when I said
1: it was really funny that he put on the black glasses. (laughs) Yeah. And we get just, like the scene of him walking through Chinatown, trying to find the specific restaurant to be able to talk to Shorter. And Shorter's just in this most ridiculous disguise imaginable. It's like he put on a fake mustache and beard, and because Arthur's men are around, he is in disguise as just stereotypical old man. It's not quite
0: this because obviously he is an Asian character, but it's like he's put on yellow face. Like he's really exaggerating that in that way, but you know, as the put on the misdirect, you know, he's got the the Fu Manchu beard and the long hair and the glasses and he's got his eyes closed in every single page Panel he's in in that disguise. Like, that's the aesthetic he's doing. Which is quite funny.
1: Yeah, he's really going for it. We also get our first glimpse of this female character at the restaurant who serves Ag. Who, I don't think it says here specifically who she is, does it? No,
0: she's just sort of there.
1: Okay. I will refrain from naming her then, but needless to say, by the way, I'm talking about her. She will be returning. Um, I guess to return a bit to some of the earlier stuff as well, there's one page in particular. Um, This is page 16 that I think is really emblematic of Yoshida's skill in pacing it is a six panel page and the top half of the page full of motion lines it is specifically Ash in the car driving his way after Martin trying to hunt him down as he's wounded and they're just loud panels between all the motion lines and the ward bubbles of Marvin talking to himself, and then these sorts of ward bubbles conveying sounds of just like ashes, pain, the grunts from his wounds. And we get the obligatory screes and just like sounds of the cars themselves moving. But then the bottom half of the page is a scene transition that is so silent. Because it's just these free panels, one an establishing shot of the outside of a window before then shifting to Papadino and Arfur. And it's just entirely quiet, like the only speech bubble just contains free ellipses. So it's just such loud silence and such an effective sort of, quick reconfiguring of the pace for me because we go literally from the frill of the chase to like a dramatic pause as Dino is considering what Arthur has told him as they're just like catching up about events I don't know this is just me again obsessing over literally just a single page but the sheer skill of just like breakneck pacing and then sudden cool down in a way that doesn't feel awkward to read is just really impressive to me.
0: You would normally see this kind of transition maybe being with the page, but the choice to have the bottom half of this page just be this entirely still moment before the conversation begins on the next page, it it feels like a it's a really distinct choice that i really like
1: yeah and it sticks out all the more for just like how fast the rest of the book is like we've been talking about plus there's just like a certain something to also having the occasional like brooding shots of papadino as the big man in charge just like thinking you know just like the sort of safety and my riches and my distance sort of criminal also just like highlighting like how far removed he is from the immediate physical action of most of the scenes even as he is sort of Calling most of the shots with regards to the antagonists. Those shots including just the sheer corruption with the cops. We meet a new police officer character.
0: Evanstein.
1: Yeah, Willard Evanstein, who is a piece of shit, just is a piece of shit. He arrives on the scene of Ash finding Marvin's dead body suspiciously quickly. And both Ash and the other cops sort of call him on it. And we later get just like the scene of him on the phone talking about how small a cop's pension is, you know, just blatant corruption. And the worst of it is this scene wherein we see him interrogating ash and once again the convenience of it all and the pre-arrangement setup of it all of them quickly finding these things in marvin's apartment and confronting ash with them to try and provoke Ash to construct the narrative that they are trying to frame him with. Because here we really get into Ash's past history with assaults, wherein this cop essentially forces Ash to look at photos and film of himself being assaulted by marvin back when he was a child we
0: got a lot of implication in the last volume but this one makes ash's backstory like very clear um and i mean it's some heavy shit i don't know if i have a lot to say aside from the fact that i think it's handled very well in this book like it's obviously incredibly important to him as a character but it doesn't it's not the thing that defines him as a character. You can see how it's shaped him and how it shapes the choices that he makes. Um, I really appreciate that, like, we aren't made to look at any of it. Like, anytime anything like that is happening in the story, including stuff that actually happens in the plot, like we mentioned earlier, that he gets attacked in the prison, we don't see that happen, which feels like an excellent choice to me on, like, multiple levels. Like, first... This isn't always the case, but that can frequently come across as really purient. Um, and also this character is still a minor. So, you know, it's it, it can be very difficult to make it work. So I'm very glad that it's just like we'll leave it. And also I think leaving it to your imagination just makes it it's it's it makes it worse, because whatever you think is gonna be worse than whatever, you know, you're gonna be able to get away with drawing in anything in anything you're going to be able to draw so i think that that was the correct choice yeah i i just i think it's handled really well like i, I obviously this is going to be an ongoing thing throughout this series but it it feels right it feels well handled
1: i concur entirely yeah like allowing the readers imagination to just sort of fill in the specifics creates enough of a sense of horror and dread and disgust and just like everything else that it needs to elicit that i think yeah is very effective tonally in conveying the information and also by not delivering more explicit images You know, instead, doing the frequent choices to cut away, I think helps the manga avoid having to, or helps it avoid feeling like the art is also victimizing Ash, you know? Because depending on the media, you know, a frequent critique that can come up with regards to just like, sexual depiction specifically of rape can be if it feels like it's being exploitative or for titillation and there's no part of this here that feels like that to me at all
0: well we've talked about this before very directly with void which makes the exact opposite choice to the point where i am confused when i read void as to I mean, part of that is the sci-fi elements of the story, but I'm confused as to whether or not the artists even realized that they were depicting rape at all when I read that. Whereas this takes it very seriously in a way that works. It's when he was making um Girl of a Dragon Tattoo, like David Fincher said that the hardest thing and the thing he most wanted to make sure he got right when he was making that film was like there's a couple scenes of sexual assault in that film and making sure that they absolutely did not wind up feeling in any way titillating that it should be like the worst thing you have to sit and watch um that film actually achieves it but it's 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 kind of a miracle whenever that is achieved because it is just so difficult to do Because the language of film isn't really designed for that. And I think same with with comics. I think most art isn't designed to make you not want to look at it. So it's really hard to achieve that. And like 99% of the time with something this horrible, I think the best choice is always just to, to cut away and let you fill it in and then let you see the aftermath and dig into what it does to characters emotionally, which is what this does.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think it's really effective handling of the subject matter throughout Ash, between the way the story is framed and his hyper-competency and, yeah, just, like, choices made with regards to how scenes like this are framed. We never lose sight of ash as a figure of agency even as we get scenes like this and just like cuts to the other characters and the way that they talk and think about him you know we also get just more continued scenes with papadino talking to like arthur and other characters there is a specific line of dialogue where Dino again calls him a lynx you know ash lynx and says that you can't make a lynx into a house cat which just immediately calls to mind you know the phrase of not being able to make a whore into a housewife which just brings up again that pair's horrid sexual history in an unsettling intentionally so way effectively i guess to sort of shift gears a little bit do you have any thoughts on just sort of the drug mystery aspect of the plot like banana fish itself
0: it's pretty interesting so far um i feel like i need to know more to understand it because right now i'm sort of like why the fuck does anyone want this drug that, like, no one can take a second dose of? Like, you know, the, the criminals are desperately trying to get and reproduce a drug that has just, like, made insane or killed everyone who's taken it, so far as we're aware. And it's a bit like, right, but isn't the whole point of, like, drug dealing the repeat business? getting people hooked, selling one, and also as soon as people hear that everyone who takes this dies, they're not going to want to take it anymore. Like I, so obviously there must be some other element of this. Cause I don't think that the writer has forgotten this fact. Like it's pretty clear that this is not someone who is anti-drug being like everyone who takes LSD is going to die. Um, But like, so, I mean, it's fine. I just I feel like I don't know why Dino wants this so badly, but i i i I shouldn't yet. so i I don't have that much to say on it, other than there needs to be something else going on like I, there needs to be a a big reveal as to what the real purpose of the drug is because it's not a very good like drug trade drug. So I hope it's more than that,,
1: sure, yeah which, like, just speaks to how much Yoshida is juggling all at the same time, that there's so much shit going on here, and yet the whole drug plot line is effectively on the back burner compared to a few other aspects of what's happening, even though that's such a central part of the story.
0: I think that, like, getting... Lobo and Ash together in this volume is a huge step forward for that plot line but that's like the one step forward in this volume for us figuring out what's going on which is just now most of the characters have about the same level of information
1: whereas before they didn't quite have those connections figured out that's fair yeah yeah Max and Ash's meeting is another significant event here Which, there's them meeting, there's their comparing of information, and there's the reveals of the connection between Ash and Griff, and we get here the revelation of Ash's real name, neither Ash or Lynx are his given names, or given or family names, rather, his real name is Aslan Callan-Reese. He has the same name as the lion from um, the Chronicles Narnia. of Narnia. Yeah. Which I find delightful. I am wondering whether that's,
0: that's such an odd name to have. I am like, okay, so is that going to be important somehow? Because that feels like such a specific reference to make. I don't know, I need to see more of the story, but, like, right now I can't see him metaphorically being the Jesus Lion. So, I'm
1: interested. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I can't and or won't really delve too deeply into it yet, but my main notes just being yet another literary reference after the Salinger of it all, and we might have got another offer name dropped at some point last volume two and if nothing else it is specifically another type of big cat he is specifically getting all of these wild feline comparisons yeah that's true i hadn't
0: thought of the the fact that yeah it it is i mean ash links as lan you can see how he just sort of turned it into A full name by splitting it in two and then just finding something that worked with each bit. And I can even see how, like, if you're a kid in a playground, you know, back in the day, you're not gonna want people to call you Aslan. So I can see how, like, Ash probably even started before he wound up, like, fully divulging his original name.
1: Yeah no child wants to be called Lan on the playground. Uh, yeah, there's also that. It's such a
0: different literary reference to Salinger as well. I mean, I know they're both like, classic authors, quote-unquote, but like, C.S. Lewis is like, extremely English, and like, essentially about half a step away from Christian literature, with Chronicles of Narnia especially. Actually I think that's his least religious work, which is kind of insane when you think about it, considering like how much of Narnia is just a metaphor for stuff from the Bible. Um you know, that and Salinger are very, very different reference points to have, and I think that's also interesting. Yeah. I don't have anything to say on it yet, but I'm I'm looking for that now.
1: Yeah. I love the continued just like literary influence here um I don't remember enough of them to really talk about a lot here maybe at some point down the road but from what I recall I think that the anime adaptation for its episode titles did like nothing but literary references to various offers, which was kind of a cute way that, They kept that theme going even in the anime. That's adorable. Yeah. Speaking of adorable, to talk about Ash and Ag again for a minute, their scenes together, we've already talked a bit about, but just to talk about them some more, because they are the crux here. The early scene of the two of them where Ash is in the hospital, and... Charlie and Jenkins have sort of put AG up to asking Ash what he knows to try and help him by seeing, like, what it is that he has on Dino. And we get this exchange between the two of them, and it's just really sweet, in my opinion. And during part of it, Ash you know, like clocks that AG has been instructed by them to try and get information out of him, but AG doesn't press him about it, you know, and is crying when he leaves the room and just couldn't prod that way. And the conversation they do have is, is sort of complimentary. You know, we see Ash actually sort of having a moment to react to the courage that A.G. showed at the volume one, closing, like, complimenting him on the jump, him not knowing A.G. had been able to do that, and I don't know. Do you have anything to say?
0: I think it's a really good scene. You you buy the intensity of their relationship very quickly. Like, as you said, they have two scenes together in this volume, and the second one... While part of it is stage, the second one does involve a like kiss and a butt slap. Um and you buy that just based on like the little bit they had last volume and the little bit they have at the beginning of this volume, but they've gotten very close very quickly. Uh, but yeah, I, I really like it. I, I like the two of them as characters. They are you know, it's it's yeah. It's a good dynamic to build the series around.
1: Yeah. And with regards to the prison visitation scene as well, it's the sort of interesting, like, it is put on, but it's the sort of, like, put on of intimacy that is different from the intimacy that is already there, but there is clearly still, you know respect between these two because it's like we get Ash like slinging his arm around AG's shoulder and like due to the two of them having been unable to talk beforehand AG has like no warning about what's going to happen before Ash just like is fully macking on him putting on a show in front of the others of just like acting incredibly flirtatious just, like, the way that it's framed to, it's just, like, interesting in terms of, like, body language and, like, the arm draping and, like, Ash, like, bringing his head close as he says, next time, come alone, okay? And then just the kiss, one of the most iconic moments in this volume, which is then pulled apart from to this panel of the two of them still faces close together as the expression has turned stern and serious with another really good use of just like a silent word bubble you know just ellipses and struggling to find words to express but there's just something interesting to me about like This clearly being an act, you know, of more overt flirting than the two would ever at this point just, like, do organically. But the fact that it's this act being perpetrated by these two who are so close that this act is meant to be and is believed by the adult figures watching it. You know, it's just a sort of says a lot about where the relationship is at, even if it's sort of fake. It just highlights what is real there, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, I I mean, there's a reason there's so many like romance genre things where it's like you have to fake dating someone for a situation. But by the end of the story, obviously they wind up dating for real like there's an appeal to that sort of like using that faux intimacy to generate real intimacy as like a narrative and like yeah the the, this scene is a show and the scene is like ash is acting kind of weird for ash but like you do get the sense that neither of them actually mind kissing when they do it, like, even if E.G.'s not expecting it at all and is, like, surprised. He's not, like, upset that Ash did this. He's immediately realized that Ash has done this for a reason because now he's got a pill he can feel in his mouth. And he is clamming up and keeping quiet about it and not questioning because, you know, he has that one staring, like, moment with Ash. I really love the use of that word balloon there to indicate that, like, obviously no one is saying anything, but Ash's look is communicating with EG, and so that bubble also slows the eye down on that panel because we stop to read even an empty word balloon, and so it makes that last just a little longer, so you get just a little bit more out of that moment. I think that's a really effective technique.
1: You said it perfectly, yeah, like another moment of just like perfectly slowed down pacing to just like let us linger on the panel and the meaning there to just like reinforce how important this moment is and yeah like AG is clearly surprised and you know like blushing sort of stuttery talk but does not seem upset. There is no a violent reaction, no pushback, what the fuck, bro. Nothing of the sort. It is just surprise, kiss, intense glance between the two of them. And then, okay, um, let me act continually bashful and tell the others I have to go to the bathroom where. I'm going to pop the pill out because I need to read this message and I need to do what I can for Ash. And yeah, AG is already fully on Ash's side.
0: I, yeah, like, I also really like the scene, you know, just like a tiny bit later where, um, eBay is like, don't let it bother you. Two Americans kissing is just like shaking hands. Which, like, no, it's not. And he knows that it's not. But also, like, the way that, that the panel after that, where E.G.'s like, thinking about the kiss, you know, like, it's surprising, but he's not really, he's not bothered by it in that way. He's still blushing for, like, several pages further, which is also very cute. Like, he's still blushing um, up until he actually goes out in his disguise.
1: It's all very cute. Yeah, like, I love eBay trying to make him feel comfortable by lying about it being normal behavior. And then even, yeah, that panel afterward, uh, page 136 of A.G. thinking about it and he's blushing and the, like, memory of the kiss depicted in the background of the panel... It's just very romantically framed, you know, like the curls of Ash's hair and like Ash's closed eyes. It looks very much like an actual romance comic depiction of that sort of moment. Yeah,
0: like that's the sort of panel that you would use when like Peter Parker is thinking about having kissed Gwen Stacy back in the 60s. You know, that's how they would illustrate that. It, yeah. it it looks like you you just take this seriously as like a romance plot, yeah.
1: And for all of various characters trying to help Ash between Max, Charlie, Wilkins, you know, AG is the only one who can really do it successfully and is like allowed to. By Ash, you know he's in a very unique position character-wise, especially with Skip now gone, as, at least in terms of the major action of this volume, really the only ally he effectively has. You know, like, there is a bit of Shorter being... A trusted figure but he's such a minor character in this volume and the setting differences you know the distance with Ash being in prison it's really agey that we get to see him interacting with in a trusting manner here but on the topic of Ash's relationships with other people I'll just go ahead and note pages 169 through like 171 are very intense in just Ash's argument with Max before Max gives up on helping him where Max is going through it with like his own sense of guilt over having shot Griff and it culminates just like in the sequence of him putting his arms around Ash's throat, and Ash is so shocked. I think just, like, the use of the motion lines and the pacing of these panels as Max just, like, realizes what he's done and pulls away. I don't know. Do you have anything to add on Ash and Max?
0: I, I like that they both have been traumatized by what happened to Griff. But rather than, like, that trauma being a thing that sort of helped, like... Because both characters essentially have the same goals. But their respective trauma over what's happened to Griff has actually put them at odds within the story. I like that. I like that they can't get over their own issues, even though it's, like, very clear that they should just be working together. I find Max's, like... PTSD shooting his friend to be very believable. Um, like, Max is, I, for me, the least compelling chunk of this, just because I do think that Ash and Eg are so, like, that they're more interesting to me as, as a narrative. But I think it's really good. And as I said, I, I like the... They're both having a really hard time being around each other because they both like, Ash's similarities visually and just, like, reminding Max of Griff makes him hard to be around and then for Ash, knowing that Max is the guy who shot his brother even though, you know, Max had no real choice in doing that and he managed to shoot him non-lethally so it's like he did the best he possibly could have under those circumstances, like it was life or death for him but the resentments that they both have because of that sort of making that relationship so contentious I do think is pretty interesting
1: I think we've hit on all the major plot points Um, I think we've hit on a lot of just like the major scenes and pages and stuff that I wanted to touch on was there anything that we didn't already talk about that you wanted to mention before we wrap up for this week
0: No, no not really I think we covered everything
1: okay I am glad that you enjoyed it. It's a good book. Yeah. You have good taste. (laughs) Thank you. I think so, too.
0: (laughs) I don't think you ever pick anything bad unless you pick it on purpose.
1: Yeah. Next week, we are in a new year and a new month with a new theme that you have chosen. Would you like to introduce what we are reading next week and basically what we are reading all of january
0: well as an incredibly late delayed reaction to the release of spider-man 2 on the ps5 we're gonna be having a spectacular spider month and we're opening with what is in my opinion the definitive peter parker spider-man story the amazing spider-man uh number 31 to 33 known alternatively as the Master Planner Saga, or if this be my destiny. This is the one where Spider-Man lifts the heavy thing.
1: One of the most famous Spider-Man images that there is.
0: It's the iconic one that makes it into every adaptation worth its salt.
1: Yeah. So that's the reading assignment for next week. We are... That's still... That is still Ditko, right? It, yes.
0: Yes. This is, it is still Ditko. Um, it is, I think it's actually the point where it starts being plotted by Ditko, which makes it for me the last good lead Ditko Spider-Man story, because Ditko's, like, Randian crap starts to sort of seep in a bit after this one. <laughs> but luckily this is peak.
1: Yeah. Next week, we are discussing classic, 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 classic Spider-Man. In the meantime, thank you all for listening, and bye. Bye. Be
0: excellent to each other.